The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. When I was a freshman in high school, I was on the junior varsity soccer team. And, you know, there's this dynamic when you're in high school. You know, you're just trying to be cool, you know, or at least fly under the radar. But when you're a freshman in high school, you're specifically trying to avoid doing something so dumb that it mars your reputation for the rest of your high school experience. And um, that was what I was trying to do, just trying not to make any huge mistakes. And unfortunately, there's an incident that happened on my freshman year that I'm going to to share with you. It's difficult for me to talk about. Um, It was... um, it was during one of the varsity soccer games, and if you're on the junior varsity soccer team, then you had the illustrious position of ball boy. Somewhat humiliating being the one as all the good soccer players are playing on the field. The, the rest of us are chasing the soccer balls and throwing them back onto the field. That was where I was at as a freshman. And so there's this one moment when the soccer ball not only just goes off the field, but there was right behind, uh, out of bounds, behind the bench where all the varsity players are sitting, there's this large chain link fence, and the ball goes over the chain link fence into this road. So I throw my soccer ball into the, into the field so they can keep playing, and I go climb over this tall fence, hop down on the other side. I'm like trying to stop traffic. I get the soccer ball, throw it back over, and I climb up the other side of, uh, of the fence. And just as I'm about to drop to the other side is when it happened. There was a little barb at the top of the fence that happened to catch the edge of my shorts. So when I dropped down 10 feet, I'm not going to say it ripped my shorts off, Okay because there were some shreds of the shorts still attached to my body. But I will tell you that the entire varsity soccer team heard the ripping sound and turned around to see me standing there and immediately excusing myself to the locker room. And that's when I realized, okay, I've just done it. I have marred myself. I am that guy now for the rest of my high school experience. I have to overcome this new identity I've given myself. Now, here's this dynamic that seems so prevalent in those adolescent times of our life, but it is something that doesn't leave us our entire life. It's this idea of managing our identity. We manage our identity with people. There's the way that we want when someone leaves us, when they leave our presence, what are they thinking about us when they leave? What have we proven to them about ourselves when they walk away? What do people know about us, believe about us, admire about us? This is the identity that we are managing most of our life. In fact, often we're trying to prove something about ourselves or maybe there's an experience in our past We're trying to disprove something about ourselves. And the interesting thing is, I mean, this idea of identity, these are deep waters that run down in our self-consciousness, in our soul, in in our emotional life. These are deep waters. And often, the person we're most trying to prove ourselves to is actually not everyone else around us. We're trying to prove something to ourselves. But if I can see it in their eyes, then I can more easily believe it about myself. This issue of identity runs so deep 
that it tints and colors pretty much every other sector of our lives. It's one of those things, it affects our relationships, it affects how we spend our time, spend our money, it affects our goals, it affects how we shape our life, it comes down to our identity and what we're trying to build, what we're trying to manage. And so because it affects so much, if we can take some time, introspectively look inside and say, what am I building my identity on? It may save us a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness and a lot of exhaustion and may uncover some brokenness that needs to be addressed because ultimately we want to find a secure foundation to build our identity upon. Over these next several weeks, we're going to dig in and talk about this issue. I would encourage you, I'm so glad you're here as we're kicking it off, I would encourage you to make the investment through this entire series as we're talking about this deep issue. It could be one of the most impacting things because of the story that we're going to read in the Bible. It could be one of the most impacting seasons of your life. We're looking at a story in the Old Testament. It's about a guy, one chapter, who goes on a journey and God takes him through shaping his identity, exposing his identity and reshaping it. And the story is out of the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. You have a Bible or a Bible app. You can open there. 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, and what we're going to do today is kind of an introduction to the story, meet the main character, see what the issues are, and just start to expose some components to the story. To set it in history, this story takes place somewhere around 850 BC, 850 years before the time of Christ, give or take a couple decades. Um, this is uh, a couple hundred years after the time of David, a couple hundred years before, if you have heard of a guy, a couple guys by the name of Ezra and Nehemiah, a couple hundred years about them before them. Um, this primarily is going to take place in the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. Judah, with its capital of Jerusalem, is in the south. Israel, the northern kingdom, with its capital called Samaria, is in the north. That, that's where the king of Israel was going to live, in Samaria. This is primarily going to take place, this story, in the northern kingdom of Israel around the mid-9th century uh, B.C. Let's look at 2 Kings 5, verse 1, and let's meet our, our main character. Naaman, commander of the armies of, of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a, what do you see there? He was a leper. This is a great opening sentence because it really sets up the tension here. Who's Naaman? Mighty man. He's a first word after Naaman in this whole passage is commander. It's his position. He runs the army of Samaria. He's like, in, it says he's in great favor with the king of Samaria. He probably has far more power, freedom, and autonomy than modern day generals do. He's a very powerful man. He's got the position of commander of Syria, but he's not just got the position. He's got the experience in his background. It says he's a mighty man of valor. It says by him, God allowed Syria to be victorious. So he's got accomplishments. He's known as a great military 
figure. He, he's, he's, got, he's a war hero. He's probably known throughout Syria, throughout his society as a, as a war hero. He's known, he's got the respect, but he also, he has favor with this king. So he's in good with the, with the king of Syria. Now, a couple other things interesting to note. When it says that God allowed them to be victorious, here's an important question. Who had they been victorious over? Israel. At this time in history, the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of Israel are butting heads. And by butting heads, it's not just like tension and rhetoric. There are battles and skirmishes constantly happening. So Naaman is the one crafting the attacks on Israel, and he's being successful. He's got everything going for him. He's got the position, the power, the accomplishments. He's got a lot more we're going to learn through this entire story. But he's got one thing. He's got the best of everything that has to offer. But he's got leprosy. What's interesting is it says he was a leper. It doesn't just say he has leprosy. He was a leper. What is leprosy? Leprosy is, modern leprosy is a little different than leprosy of antiquity. That leprosy in ancient times was kind of an umbrella word for skin diseases. And leprosy that this is talking about is it starts as like a, a mark on your skin, but it slowly spreads and starts rotting your skin. Basically, you're rotting from the outside in. And as it spreads, it's killing your skin, turning it sheet white, and it's disfiguring you because it's killing your skin. And they, the way they would describe it is you looked like a walking corpse as it started to spread around your body. And so here's the problem with leprosy. Not only do you have the, the pain of leprosy, it's disfiguring. It's, you look like a horror. I mean, you look like a walking corpse. It's disfiguring, so it strips you of your dignity. But it was also considered to be very contagious so people didn't want to be around you. People would, you would be ostracized. In fact, in Israel, the law was if you had leprosy, you had to go live outside the village or the city until you were cured. And there was no cure that they knew. So you had to live out there until you happened to get cured because they didn't want it to spread to anyone else. So this is an incredible tension. Put yourself in Naaman's shoes as we enter into this story. What, what's going on with Naaman? His life is, I mean, it's like a storybook. It's going perfect. He's climbing the ladder. He's having victory. He's having successes. He's getting recognized. He's getting the position. He's in with the king. He's got everything he could want. He's got success, power. And then one day, there's a mark on his skin. There's something that's it's growing. He says, well, maybe I'll just wash this off. He tries to wash it off, but the, a couple weeks later, it's spreading, and then dread settles in. Oh, I hope this isn't what I think it is. He's kind of maybe covering up. Maybe he doesn't even tell his family. He can't even bring it himself to tell his family, but it's starting to spread. One day they see it. Now he sees fear and dread in their eyes. They don't want to get his leprosy. Maybe they're keeping his distance, but he still goes out. Maybe he's trying to still wear long clothes. He doesn't want that stigma happening, but before long, maybe it's creeping onto his hands, maybe up his neck, onto his face. He can't hide it anymore, and before long, he's now going to be known as a leprous person. And imagine a guy as high profile as Naaman. Man, this news is going to spread like wildfire. What we find is that Naaman is desperate. But we learn just how desperate he is in this next verse. I want you to look at 2 Kings 5, verse 2. Look what it says next. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. 
and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told, told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. Now look what happens here. Okay, he's got a little girl that works in his house as a servant that they had kidnapped on one of their recent raids in Israel. So that means these skirmishes are recent, right? He still has a little girl that they kidnapped. This is how bad this is. Maybe her village got destroyed. Maybe her family got killed. Maybe the rest of her family is also in Syria. They're working as servants somewhere. Who knows what the situation is, but she's in his household. Now, if you're that servant girl and you find out Naaman, the one who maybe destroyed your village or was responsible for it, you find out that Naaman has leprosy What's your reaction? You're probably going to be like, great. It's God's judgment, man. I hope it takes him quickly. Maybe I can get back home. This is amazing, this, the innocence, the faith, the love this little girl has. She goes up to her mistress, Naaman's wife, and she says, oh, I just wish Mr. Naaman would go back to Samaria, go back to Israel, because there's a prophet there that could cure him of his leprosy. And here's what's amazing is that Naaman's considering it. He goes to his, to his king, his boss, and asks him about that. I want you to see just how desperate that shows us that Naaman is. First of all, he's taking the counsel of a little girl. This isn't like a friend that has this idea. It's a little girl. It's, she's pulling on his, his robe saying, I've got an idea for you. And he's getting on a knee and he's taking it seriously. She has an idea. But it's not just any little girl. It's not like the daughter of a, a noble person or, or one of his soldiers or the king. This is a daughter. This little girl is a, his, one of his servants. He's listening to his servant who's a little girl who's the enemy. She's from Israel. But he is so desperate, he's considering it. That tells me he is absolutely out of options. He's exhausted every other option that he can come up with. He's actually going to the king, and he's not just like, hey, I heard this one possible solution. He's going to the king saying, this is what this little girl told me. But it's not just who told it to him. It's what the remedy she's proposing, it's what she's proposing that he's actually entertaining. She's suggesting he goes back to Samaria Back to Samaria is the capital of the kingdom of Israel and the surrounding region. He, she's saying he goes into the capital of enemy territory and essentially say, hey guys, I know that I'm responsible for wrecking half of your village, villages. Some of you are missing your children. That's on me. We kidnapped them. But I've got some leprosy here. Anyone know a good pharmacist around here? I could get some ointment for my healing. I could use some help. You guys, could you guys help me out? He, he's... She's proposing that he goes looking for help for his humiliating leprosy, and he's considering it. That's how desperate he is. But here's what happens next, and, and this is where things really start to get interesting. Here's what happens starting in verse 5. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. 
And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Okay, look how this plays out. The king says, okay, go to the king, the king of Syria, Naaman's boss, says, okay, do it. I know you're desperate, do it. I'll give you a letter to take to the king of Israel. Naaman comes in with his entourage. We're going to talk about his entourage in a second because that's important. He comes into his entourage with his entourage. Now you're the king of Israel. You're sitting on your throne. A messenger comes in and says to you, hey, you know how we're constantly at war with Syria? Yeah. Well, the general of their army is here to see you. What's your thinking? You're like, okay, you have everyone on alert status. You welcome him in. He comes sauntering in. He's got all of his people with him. He hands you a letter. You open up the letter. It's from the king of Syria. He says, hey, I've sent you Naaman. Please cure him of his leprosy. He says, what? He tears his clothes. What does he think? That's impossible. The king of Syria is picking a fight with me. He's just as a setup. I'm going to have to send this guy back, say, there's no cure, sign the king of Israel, and send Naaman back. And then he's going to say, that's it, I'm declaring war on you, and it's going to start a battle. This guy's just picking a fight. And it says he tears his clothes, a symbol of grief, tears his clothes, and then Elisha. We, this is the first time we find out which prophet we're talking about. It's a guy named Elisha. Not to be confused with the more famous prophet, Elijah, with a J. This is Elisha with an S-H. Actually, Elijah trained and mentored Elisha. Elisha is his successor, and they both do remarkable things. We're going to be studying the second one, Elisha. Elisha hears this whole thing. He says, just send him over here so that you know there really is a prophet in Israel. And I want you to see what Naaman did. He rolls into Elisha's neighborhood, up to his house, down his street, up to his house, and it says, with his entire entourage. Now, this is what we've got to dig into today a little bit. I just want you to see what Naaman brought with him to Israel. Because so far, we know about Naaman's circumstances. We don't really know about Naaman's heart. Is he a good guy? You know, has he got issues? I mean, what, what's his character like? I want you to see what he comes to Israel. And the first thing is it says, it says he comes in, he says, with 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold. That's his traveling money. Now, how much is that? Is that... 6,000 shekels of gold, is that $6,000? What is that? 10 talents of silver, is that like 100 bucks? I mean, how much gold and silver is he coming with? This is an absurd amount of money. Unbelievable, jaw-dropping amount of money. Let me give you an idea of how much money this is. The capital of Israel, Samaria, was built on a hill. 
they bought the entire hill for two talents of silver. He's coming to town with 10 talents of silver. What is he trying to communicate about his own value? Let's put this all together. The, the gold and the silver, it's hard to estimate, but one estimate, best estimate we could come up with is that's got the equivalent buying power, his traveling money, the equivalent buying power of $750 million. That's what he travels with. Now remember, that's not on a special credit card. That's in treasure chests in his entourage. Okay, if you're like me, I can understand like $7.50, okay? Beyond that, I start to, like, I can't compute large sums of money. So here's what we're going to do. I, I want, just for an exercise, it's important for you to understand $750 million. What I'd like to do is let's pretend we are his traveling agent, his accountant. We are responsible for spending his money while he's traveling, okay? Can you, can you do this with me, okay? Naaman is traveling to Miami, and we have to spend his money, Okay? So first thing, we got to find a place for Naaman to stay, right? I mean, this is a big shot, okay? He's got to stay in the nicest place. We're going to put him in a penthouse in Miami, okay? There's a lot of nice penthouses in Miami, okay? There's some for $2,000 a night, $5,000 a night, $8,000 a night, but we're going to put him in the best. There's this one penthouse, okay, that is the penthouse of the, the building called the Satai. Now, if you're like me, and the Hampton Inn is like reaching, okay? Like that, that's you're with me, okay? Then like a hotel room at the Hampton Inn, okay, that's like maybe 400 square feet, maybe if you get the suite, okay? That's like 400 square feet. The, the penthouse suite at the Satai in Miami Beach is 10,000 square feet. Four bedrooms. It also has a music room. I mean, who wants to stay at a hotel room that doesn't have its own private music room? with a Steinway piano in it, huge wraparound porch. In fact, here's a picture of the porch, okay? You've got your own pool in the back corner, your own jacuzzi, okay? We are going to sit, Naaman, he, we're, he's going to get the best of the best from us. We're going to put him in the Satai, the penthouse of the Satai, the nicest. And if you're looking for a vacation spot this summer, okay, you could stay here for the bargain price of $30,000 a night. We're going to put Naaman there, and you know what? We're just going to put him there for the entire month of May. The whole month, he's going to stay there. Now, I want you to just compute this in your brain. For the entire month of May, we still have not yet spent $1 million. We have to figure out how to spend another $749 million for Naaman, okay? So, He's got to have a car, right? I mean, he's not going to walk around places. He's not going to take the people mover. He needs a car. So I think we should get him this car. Okay, we, we could get him a Range Rover, like bulletproof Range Rover, or we could get him, but I think we get him this car. Okay, this is the highest end 2017 Lamborghini 750 horsepower, zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds, and you can have one of these for $4.5 million. So if that's your budget, you should decide between Lamborghini or 4,000 Range Rovers. 
I think we get him the Lamborghini. Okay, we, he's got the Lamborghini, but we still have to spend $745 million. Okay, we're, we're, we're not chipping away fast enough here, so he needs a jet. He can't take his Lamborghini from Damascus to Miami. Okay, he needs to fly in a plane, but we're going to put him in a nice plane. I'm not talking like a Cessna here. Okay, I'm talking top of the line. I think we put him in this plane. Anyone happen to know which plane this is? That's Air Force One, people. Best of the best for naming. Okay, the newest Air Force One they're working on right now is a Boeing 747-8 VIP. Okay, it's the longest passenger plane that, that is built in America. If you have a lot of friends and you're trying to put them all on a plane, like let's say you have 450 friends, you can get one of these and, and fit them all on here. The base price for one of these is $350 million, but to deck it out and make it, as they call the palace of the sky, you need a couple hundred million dollars. We'll round it out to $500 million. We'll put Naaman in one of these. We'll just buy it for him. Okay, so that means we've put him in the plane, we've given him the car, and we've got him in the penthouse, and that leaves left over about $240 million of just spending money, okay? So he can buy some souvenirs and some things while he's here. Go through Whole Foods for one shopping trip. You know, those kinds of things. Okay, he, we're making sure best of the best for Naaman while he's in Miami. Okay, I want you to hear, get in your mind the amount of money he is coming into town with. Okay, that sets the tone for the rest of what's described, because it says he brings 10 changes of clothing. Now, when you and I read that, it sounds like it's saying he brings $750 million and a carry-on suitcase. Like he's like, he packed like a couple pairs of khakis, a few polos he threw in his swimsuit. You can't forget that. Okay, that's not what this is describing. This is not an, a time in history when people had closets full of clothes. This is describing him as dressing constantly like a king. We're talking like 10 like red carpet level outfits. It's like every time they turn around, Naaman is walking around in, like, in his regalia, like new kingly robes. It's like a new color of robes with like a matching hat and a scepter. I mean, he is decked out with all of this clothes. He comes with the wealth, he comes with the clothes, and he comes with a letter. He doesn't just come by himself. No, he knows people. He slides his reference across the table. I don't know if you know this guy. He's the king. He knows people. He's got connections. He's got some names that he can drop. He rubs shoulders with important people. He doesn't wait in line trying to get into the club. They usher him right in when he walks up. He's, he is, runs in the right circles, this guy. Okay, he's got... Connections. He comes with his money. He comes with his, his style, all of his clothes. He comes with his letter. But did you catch this last thing? It says he goes into Elisha's neighborhood with his horses and chariots. He comes in with his armies. Okay, you're Elisha. You're sitting at your house one afternoon. You're sitting in your recliner. You're watching HGTV reruns and all of a sudden comes rolling out in front of your house, okay, like five tinted out Suburbans, 
guys stepping out, there's security, they're making sure everything's okay. All of a sudden pulls up onto your lawn two completely decked out Humvees with guys with machine guns. Then you hear something rumbling. It's a tank coming down your street, destroying the asphalt, turning the turret towards your house, Apache helicopters circling overhead, and then a Lambo comes screaming down the street, coming in sideways into your driveway, and the, the doors go up like this. Out steps Naaman. He's got his Armani suit. He's the only one that has this type of suit. Okay, he straightens it out. He saunters up, up to your door, knocks on the door. Okay, you're Elisha. What do you do? Like, I'm making some iced tea really quickly, okay? Putting some hot pockets in the microwave, getting ready for a VIP guest. Okay, what does Elisha do? <laughs> Sorry, I don't eat hot pockets. <laughs> they can kill you, I've heard. All right, verse 10. What does Elisha do? And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Don't you love how Elisha handles him? <laughs> Sitting in his recliner, flipping through the stations, his servant says, hey, did, did you know that um, Naaman the Syrian, the, that commander guy, he's out there, he's like, oh, is that what the rumbling was? Mute. Tell him to wash in the Jordan. Unmute. <laughs> Servant comes out to Naaman and says, yeah, he tells me go wash in the Jordan seven times. What's Naaman's reaction? He is enraged. It's not just he's insulted. He's not a little put off. He's not peeved. He's livid. There's not stronger words to describe how angry he is. He is enraged and he storms off. He's kicking things over as he's going, slamming doors. He storms off, screeches off in his car. He, he is furious. Why is he so angry? I want you to look at how name. We're going to stop here for today because we've got to unpack some of this to kind of set up the rest of our series. I want you to look how Naaman rolls into town. What's he trying to display about himself? What's he trying to prove about himself? He's trying to say, look, look how wealthy I am. You see these like camel loads of treasure? Look how wealthy that I am. He's trying to show, he wants everyone he comes into contact to walk away and be like, wow, I didn't realize Naaman had that much money. I mean, he's, he's wealthy. He comes in with all this wealth. He's trying to prove it. Display it. He, he's coming with all these, this clothing. Why is he trying to do that? He wants everyone to know that he looks good. 
Look at his glory. Look at his beauty. Look how he displays his presentation of himself. Look what he's trying to show that, he's, that he is beautiful. Look what he's trying to display with the letter. He's connected. He's accepted in high circles. Look at the level of acceptance he has because the people that know him, the people he rubs shoulders with, he has connections. He's trying to show with all of his armies, look at his position. Look how powerful he is. He's standing there as the door slams in his face at Elisha's house and everything in him wants to say, do you realize who I am? In fact, in the ancient Hebrew, it's actually even more emphatic. It reads like this, to me, they didn't come out. In other words, it's like he stands there and his first words are, do they realize who I am? Do they know why? Did you see my car out here? I mean, did you see the, these tanks? I mean, do you know who I am? Do you see this suit? Do you know how much money is in those treasure chests? Do you know who I am that he wouldn't come out to me of all people? He is incensed. Why? Because all this stuff that he's trying to display about himself ends up being meaningless. Doesn't work. He's trying to prove that he's successful, he's wealthy. Elisha doesn't even get out of his recliner. It does him no good. He's got to pack it up and leave. It would have been so much nicer if Elisha is some fancy spiritual guru that's really expensive. So then he goes back to Damascus and like, yeah, I got healed. You, don't, you won't believe how much money I had to spend to get this healing, but I can afford it. He can't do that. His money gets him nowhere. His connections get him nowhere. The people he knows, the people he's connected with, he throws down this letter and and the king of Israel says, I can't help you. What what do you think I can work miracles? Elisha has to initiate to him and say, come to my house, I'll help you out. His connections do nothing. How about this? Think about his clothing for a second. Think of what he's displaying with his clothing. Think about... What the remedy is, he's, what Elisha says is if you want to be healed, you're going to have to wash in the Jordan. Do you see the irony in that? He's displaying his beauty with his clothes, but to get cured, he's going to have to disrobe and leave it on the shore. His clothes get him nowhere. What about all the people he came with him to show his power? That's just more people, a larger audience, to see how humiliated he is at Elisha's house. He's furious because every one of those things did nothing to cure his leprosy. Why is that so important? I want you to notice something interesting about how the word leprosy is used to this chapter. The narrator says in the beginning, Naaman and calls him a leper. He doesn't say Naaman, he did all these things and he had leprosy. He defines him with the word. Everyone else in the chapter says, Naaman, cure your leprosy except Naaman. Naaman says, and it's almost awkwardly worded, I thought he would come out and cure this leper. Leprosy was the identity he was running from. Isn't it interesting how the things we do so quickly become our identity? We, uh, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with these, this wording, it's just revealing. We don't just simply say, I practice law. We say, I am a lawyer. We don't say, I practice medicine. We say, I am a doctor. That's how things define. How about hobbies? Do you play golf? Someone plays golf is different than someone who is a golfer. 
That means that hobby has become part of their identity. I enjoy music or I am a musician. Or how about this? I failed or I am a failure. This passage, Naaman is emphatic. I am a leper. He has an identity. And I want you to see how each one of these things, he's, when you have leprosy, you look like you are powerless and you're losing strength. Are you feeble? Well, Naaman is combating that by saying, look at all of my, my might and my power with this army. What happens when you have leprosy? You're ostracized from people. But he's saying, look at my connections with this letter. When you have leprosy, what's happening? When you have leprosy, it's disfiguring your face. But Naaman is literally covering it over with beautiful clothes, trying to prove, look how beautiful I am. And he's got this thing he's running from in this identity, and he's built all of these things, but none of them work, and none of them offer anything. And he's in a rage. You know, the thing with identity, is this what we're talking about? This is not something that just happens in ancient times, is it? You know someone who's, who's just like Naaman. You've experienced conversations like this. Most people, you're sitting next to someone on the plane. Most people don't do this. Hi, I'm Tim. I'm extraordinarily wealthy. They usually don't say, hey, how are you doing? I'm a very successful person. I don't know if you notice how fashionable I am. Hi, good to meet you. I know important people. Makes me important. Most people don't do that, do they? But through the course of the conversation, they might not come right out and say that, but they might start dropping hints that they're a successful, wealthy person. They might just talk about the car they drive or where they vacation or their house or something like that. They may not say, look at me, I'm fashionable, but everything else about what they're wearing, how they're accessorizing or what, what they are putting around them might be trying to communicate, look, I'm put together, I'm beautiful. They may not say, I am well-connected, but they might be dropping names the entire time to prove that. They may not say, hey, look at me, I've got position and power, but they may shift the conversation so that you leave saying, wow, that person, they're like a really powerful person. So we've all been in conversations. This is what we do. We try to shape our identity. Now, here's the caution. Let's take a time out. We can listen and study this whole passage and study it for someone else. But that's an absolute waste of time, isn't it? What's important is we study this passage and we open up ourselves, diagnose ourselves, and we say, God, where am I trying to build my identity on something that is not worth my building my identity? It's not going to cure me of my leprosy. What is the identity I'm trying to build? When someone walks away, if they could have one impression of me, what is it I hope that they have? If they were to scan my social media, what am I hoping they learn about me? And that's, what, what's the idea that I want to get? What am I trying to prove to them and really try to prove to myself? What am I trying to, how am I trying to shift what people think of who I am? I want to just quickly, we're going to start this. I want you to just look at these four right here and honestly open up and say, hey, which of these are I'm most trying to find my identity in? Is it success? If someone could leave for me, it's like Naaman, he's trying to say, look at my wealth, look at my success. Is the one thing I want someone to know about me when they leave, wow, that person's a successful person. Is it, is it maybe not that one, is it vanity? 
Is that, wow, I want them to leave saying, wow, that person looks good or that person's got it all together. Sometimes vanity is not just looking good or looking fashionable. Sometimes it's looking like you're put together sharp or maybe look at what a godly Christian family that is. They've got it all together. What's the impression that I want them to leave? Is it that I look good? Maybe it's success. Maybe it's vanity. Maybe it's connections. I want people to know, man, I rub shoulders with important people, so that makes me significant and important. And I want them to know the circles I run in, the people I have access to. Or is it maybe the last one? Is it position? If there's one thing I'm kind of shaping, I'm putting out there and reminding subtly people that I have got a certain position, a certain amount of power, a certain amount that I've achieved. So here's the problem. We so often are shaping our identity on these things and you say, look, I don't know. Those are all things. Let me ask you a question. When you look up here at this screen, here's a good diagnostic question. If you're standing right next to someone and they get credit for one one of those things and you get overlooked, which of those things would cause you the most frustration if you were overlooked for it and the person next to you was applauded for it? that probably means that's part of how you're building your identity on that issue. But what we learn from Naaman, whatever it is that you're running from, whatever it is that leprosy, whatever it is that you're making up for, maybe it's that person in the past that said you'll never amount to anything, so now you're trying to prove them wrong, no, I am successful. Or maybe it's that, that person that for some reason, some situation happened, and now you want to present well and look good. Or maybe it's, it's you want to see, no, I, I do have position, I do have power. What are you running from? What are you trying to prove to other people? Because probably you and I are trying to just prove it to ourselves. If we can take these next several weeks and dig into this and set our foundation on a more solid, solid foundation, our identity on a more solid foundation, it will save us from so much hurt and pain and wasted energy and maybe a wasted life. Because think about this, Christian, you say, well, man, it's hard to pull away from running after success and wealth. But if you're in Jesus, what does he say? The Son of God says to you, I am going to inherit all things and you are going to be co-heirs with me. The one who's inheriting the whole universe is saying, you're co-heirs with me inheriting the whole universe. What does this world then have to offer you if you are going to inherit the universe with Christ? You say, yeah, well, what about, I mean, it's, I want to be with near a powerful person. Power is important in this world. How could power be any more important than the one who is going to reign over all the universe? Jesus says, if you are in Christ, you will reign with me. You say, yeah, but you know, it's helpful to have connections and to know people. If you know Jesus, you know the person who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he's looked at you and said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm walking with you. I'm the friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you're connected to Jesus, what connections do you need? If you're saying, look, I, I gotta look good. I gotta present well. I've got people to notice me. Do you realize what the Bible says? You are covered by the blood of Jesus. His righteousness is is clothing you with his righteousness. If you have the most precious substance in the universe, the saving blood of the Savior that has washed you clean, what else could you possibly be clothed with to make you more resplendent? If you have Jesus... There's nothing else this world can offer you. It is the foundation to build our lives on and build our identity on. That is who you are.
For some in here, the first step for you is realizing this fact. No matter how far you feel from God, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what mistakes are defining you and still still haunting you, you need to know this. God, the Almighty One who made everything, loves you so much, even though you're far from God, even though we don't deserve His love, He loves you so much, He sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to earth. He was crucified on a cross. He died and was buried. And on the third day, He rose again from the dead. Why? He was paying for your sins and my sins, washing you clean. You're in a state of permanent forgiveness if you receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you. Do you realize how much he loves you? That's an identity to build something on. Do you realize your past has been washed away and God sees you like he sees with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That's an identity to build something on. He's washed you clean. Maybe today you can put your faith in Jesus for the first time and take that step. If that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Can we all just go before God in just a spirit of prayer? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a second? I just want to lead you in a simple prayer. If that's you, and you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time today, then just simply right there in your seat, in your heart, between you and God, just make this your prayer. God, thank you for loving me that much. Thank you for having a plan to save me. Thank you for washing away my sins and forgiving me. Thank you for making a way for me to spend eternity in heaven. I surrender my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.